Hi, I'm Tim Bones, and you're listening to the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host Dario, and as you heard, with me today is Tim Bones uh, out of. Um, the UK, I guess. Um, uh, thanks for being on the show. How are you doing? <laughs> uh, my pleasure. Yeah, and it, and it is the UK for definite. Yeah, okay. Um, this is episode 70, and uh, Tim has a new solo album coming out, and that is on August 28, which is the day after this episode gets released. Um, yeah, and we're going to talk about this, of course. Um but we like to start our show with a little section that we like to call What's in Your Walkman? Um, now, <laughs> I'm pretty sure you, you don't listen to music on a Walkman uh, anymore, um, but I, I'm pretty sure you're listening to some music every now and then, so I'd like to know, um, yeah, what's, what has been in your playlist recently? Um, what has? Oh. It, it, could be, it could be anything. It could be something... Uh, super obscure something old something new something popular uh, something prog something not prog something whatever you want um, and if it's on spotify we'll put it in the playlist that would will accompany this uh okay episode. Well, well crikey I, I i always listen to quite a lot of music actually uh new music old music in terms of walkman i actually do have i did buy relatively recently because no man released a cassette uh, last year and i realized i had no means of playing a cassette so i bought a new style of walkman so in fact the only thing that's ever been in my walkman <laughs> is the latest no man album from last year but all right <laughs> um in terms of um how i listen to music you know weirdly i i still buy cds i still buy vinyl um and I use kind of streaming mostly to either discover things or just a kind of a quick refresher. Um, but, you know, knowing what streaming is kind of doing to the music industry um, and just being a lover of physical formats and losing myself um, in artwork and lyrics, I still regularly buy CDs and LPs. Um, in terms of what I've been listening to lately, which is your question, which I'm avoiding. Um, <laughs> You're very good at that. <laughs> I'm very good at avoiding questions, yeah. Um, there are so many. I've even got on my table, in front of my record player, quite a lot of things there. So let me try and remember, rather than look on my computer or go over to that pile. Um, a new album by Nadine Shah called Kitchen Sink, which is very interesting. Thundercats, new album, It Is What It Is, which I think is very beautiful in parts. Um, Jack Hughes has released a great double album called Primitive, which um, I suppose has a certain kind of progressive bent. And um, Roger Eno and Brian Eno's new album, Mixing Colours, I've been listening to that, which is very beautiful and very calming and great music for the apocalypse. <laughs> uh, and I've also been listening to... Um, a Mott the Hoople box set. So Mott the Hoople were a kind of 70s, well, 60s, 70s British um, rock band. And they were kind of interesting because they sort of straddled everything from 
hard rock to country rock to progressive rock to glam rock. And David Bowie famously produced them in 1972 and write a song, wrote a song for them. So they're, they're sort of interesting as this hodgepodge of all things 60s and 70s in Britain. Um, but their lead singer, Ian Hunter, is, is quite an interesting character. All right. Um, I, I just know the name. Uh, so I know them by name, but I never uh, yeah, go around to checking out their music. And as you say, probably if you check out one album, it might not be um, what you will find on another album. <laughs> uh, absolutely. They did shift quite a lot. But um, there's a beautiful ballad called Sea Diver, which I'd recommend if you're having a Spotify. And then there's an epic track um, from their 1969 debut called Half Moon Bay. And that's really quite interesting. So they, what's odd about them is they sort of combined um, the lyrical qualities of somebody like Dylan with the rock qualities of, say, the Rolling Stones. But then they also had the grandeur of a band like Procol Harum. Oh, so wow. they, had a lot of, they had a lot of organ in the music. Yeah. So it was... It was one of those bands where what I love about early progressive music, this is, I'm going to deviate now. What I love about early progressive music is that people were just making music and it was from their imagination and from their eclectic tastes. And actually they didn't know what they were doing. So, you know, in a case like Bot Mot the Hoople, they probably love Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, Procol Harum and soul music, and they put it together in a unique mixture. And I, of course, I think that's what a lot of the British progressive rock bands, and of course, Italian and German progressive rock bands did in the early days. They like classical, folk, jazz, pop, the Beatles, you know, they all love the Beatles. And <laughs> with sheer imagination, put together these amazing combinations of music, which is one of the reasons why I still love, you know, a lot of the early progressive music. Yeah, that that was actually a very nice uh, um, episode uh, or or episode of the, of our uh, what's in our Walkman um, section here um, <laughs> because the uh, longest. Uh, I think we had longer, but uh, um, maybe you can stay on the line later and and tell me specific tracks for the other albums, um, which I can put on the on the playlist. Uh, yeah, okay. Before we dive in uh, into um, yeah your music, I also have uh, two recommendations uh, for the playlist that's uh, been in my Walkman, so to speak. Uh, one is a uh, solo EP from Between the Buried and Me frontman and singer uh, who goes by the name of Thomas Gills in his solo uh, work, and it's called Better Now, and it's it's a um, short EP, it's three tracks it's um, electronic pop music um, for people who are um, might be aware of Thomas Jill's solo work outside of Between the Buried and Me they know it's not like frantic uh, progressive metal with core influences, whatever he's mm. always been dabbling with avant-garde pop or something like that and um Sounds interesting. Yeah, I, I, this is it's it's called Better Now, and it's just like three little songs, and they're just beautifully produced, and and the middle song has like a, an electronic beat that reminded me of early Deepish Mode, and I was like, hmm, that that might be the music that Deepish Mode could could make nowadays if they would still make 
daring or interesting music or like not play it safe, you know? <laughs> no, I, I think I know what you mean. And I think, you know, Depeche Mode, because for me with progressive, the spirit of progressive changes with each decade, with each half decade. And, you know, certainly in the 1980s and early 1990s, Depeche Mode were a very progressive band. They were constantly challenging themselves and their fans and drawing in influences from industrial, from classical. Um, you know, I've, I've got a lot of time for those um, Certainly sort of Depeche Mode 1984, 1991, there's some great music there. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, actually, the, the it was kind of a, a connection in my head because um, the second track on your album is called I'm Better Now, yep. of course. And so, so I was like, okay, there was this cool EP uh, that was released earlier this year. Um, and I thought it also fit uh, fits the your approach, your approach yeah. to progressive pop music whatever we're gonna uh, talk about all this in a second um my second entry to the playlist would be um from someone i'm pretty sure you know very well and that's evan carson's solo album from last year um never uh, heard of him <laughs> <laughs> it's uh It's such a gem. I love it so much. It's uh, called Ochipinski for those who haven't heard it. It's one of the best albums from 2019, really. And um, I, when I saw that he's playing on your album, I just thought I have mm. to give him one more shout out for this beautiful album with amazing uh, guest contributions, most notably, of course, Gleb Kolyadin from I Am The Morning. Um, but also Carl James Pesca, Pesca on, on violin and viola from Arstidir um, and um, Jim Gray from Caligos Horse. Um, yeah. So yeah, and he's playing on your album and that brings us to your new album. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Uh, Evan's a great player. I mean, Evan's somebody I worked with originally about... Um, gosh, when would it have been? A few years back, maybe three or four years ago. Um, I did a couple of co-headline gigs with I Am The Morning and Evan was their live drummer. And I was so taken with his ability. He's such an original drummer, actually. And you, you can't say that very often about drummers that they've got their own strong style these days. Um, and what I love about him is he drives the music. He's got a real sense of groove and momentum, but he never overwhelms the music. He's always working for it. And we liked him so much that by the second gig, I got him on stage with us. <laughs> and so he played the entire gig with my band. So we had a drummer and percussionist working against each other and it was fantastic. And since then I've wanted to use him um, on one of my albums. And luckily a couple of tracks on this album just suggested his style and um, he agreed. And, and with any luck, I'll be guesting on his next solo album that he's in the process of making as well. Awesome. Um... Yeah, one thing that kind of stood out when I when I was looking at your solo albums, uh, for once, of course, um, yeah, this you've been quite busy in the last decade. I mean, since abandoned dancehall dreams, you've been quite constantly putting out solo albums. Um, but in terms of of like just looking at your solo albums, there was there was a big gap between the first one, my hotel year, yeah. like ten years, and then until Abandoned Dancehall Dreams. Um, yeah, how, how did that come about? How did you like start with it? I think Abandoned Dancehall Dreams is also 
considered like like uh I've heard from from various people who are familiar with your work that they particularly like this album and and think it's yeah. it's great. So uh how how did you come to kind of restart your solo career in in 2014 then? Well, it sort of started with um, with No Man, really, because I'm in a band with Stephen Wilson called No Man, and we've been going for, for quite a long time. And um, No Man had released a studio album in 2008 called School of Ghosts, and that was written in a very different way from most of the No Man albums, because most No Man albums, it's me and Stephen together writing all the material. You know, it's No Man. But with Schoolyard Ghost, that was written with me um, bringing in songs, either songs that I'd written entirely or I'd written with other people. And Stephen was coming in more as a producer in some ways. He was playing on everything and he was co-producing it with me. And Abandoned Dancehall Dreams started when we were talking about doing a new No Man album because we'd done a No Man tour in um, 2012 and we'd played in Aschenberg, if I pronounce it correctly. Aschenberg. Uh, that's the one, um, um, as well as Cologne, I think. And so we'd, we'd had a successful No Man tour in 2012, and we'd really developed quite a unique um, band sound that's very different from our studio albums. And since Schoolyard Ghost, I'd been writing songs and co-writing songs with No Man in mind. And um, so I brought them to Stephen, and Stephen at that time was just too busy, and he said, look, you know, you've written the stuff, why doesn't it become your solo album? Um, I'll mix it for you. And so I kind of took that as a springboard. And so I'd written the material for Abandoned Dancehall Dreams, you know, over a sort of a five, six year period with No Man in mind. So Abandoned Dancehall Dreams was very much my idea of what a No Man album should be. So it's my version. And um, luckily it did well. And I maybe excited by making the album um, and having a lot more autonomy, uh, started working on stupid things that mean the world. And yeah, it, it sort of provided a springboard for a lot of writing and a lot of creativity. Um, whereas my, my debut solo album from 2004 that you mentioned never felt like a solo album because that, what that was, was at the time I'd been writing with three or four different people, including a German musician called Marcus Reuter. Yeah. And I'd been working with three or four different people on various albums and they were getting nowhere. And so the first solo album, My Hotel Year, it was me putting together three tracks from this project, three tracks from that project, three tracks from that project, and just creating an album out of it. And so it never felt like a coherent album. Whereas, because right. I love albums, you know, I love yeah. the experience of being lost in an album, whether, you know, the artwork, the lyrics, and a kind of a flow that's intentional. Um, you know, I've, I've never got over falling in love with Pink Floyd when I was 11, you know, because Pink Floyd made the most beautiful albums. And um, I, I think I had I had the same experience when I was 12, probably with uh, it was the delicate sound of thunder version of uh, Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Okay. Well, interestingly <laughs> enough, it was. And that, well, that was a in 2000 and 2000 1999 maybe so okay a couple of years after that came came out obviously but yeah i had to say the same experience that's 
that's the sole reason why I'm sitting here today and I'm, why I'm interested <laughs> in this kind of music. It's, well, it all started it, there. <laughs> it might be, strangely enough, it might be for me because I think it was, it was listening to Shine On You Crazy Diamond on Wish You Were Here that we, we had the music. You know, I think um, some friends had borrowed cassettes from their, their parents and so we had all of these albums, you know, like Wish You Were Here and Physical Graffiti and Tubular Bells and what have you. And um, we liked all of them. But then Wish You Were Here came on, Shining You Crazy Diamond. And I was absolutely captivated. It was so beautiful. And um, so, yes, there you go. The same track, different album um, is why we're talking. Um, and so... My hotel year never really felt like like a solo album or an intentional album, but abandoned dancehall dreams did, and 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 I also kind of put it down to the fact that about um, nine ten years ago um, I had a child, and when you have a child, it puts everything into perspective. You know, you feel your own mortality, <laughs> you feel your own lack of time, mm-hmm. and so basically, I think I've used my time more creatively and more wisely since having a child because it makes you more aware of the passing of time and how important creativity and life is. Wow. (laughs) Powerful words. Um, (laughs) Let's uh, look at another aspect that I I, kind of, yeah, kind of sprung to my eyes when I checked the, your solo albums over the last years. Um, so all the solo albums up until now, uh, you you always had like several, like a vast array of guest artists, actually, guest, mm-hmm. guest musicians um, that helped form the album in one way or another. And the, no, and the, the, the new one, it's just four people, <laughs> or like five, including you. Um, Yeah, well, I I can tell you, with this, it it was interesting because um, I think with every album that I make, I've got to feel that it's doing something different. I've got to feel that I'm ending up somewhere different with the music emotionally. And what had happened with this album is that I'd I'd finished Flowers at the Scene in, this was the album that was released early last year, I'd finished it in, in 2018. Then I spent quite a long time with Stephen Wilson working on the No Man album, Love You To Bits. And that was basically kind of re-recording and rewriting and adding to a piece that we'd sort of originally started 25 years ago. So this was a piece that was a long time in the making. And Flowers at the Scene was quite a dynamic album. And Love You To Bits was even more dynamic. It was quite relentless and quite electronic and beat-oriented. And I'd actually not written a new song probably for about a year because, you know, I don't believe in writing for the sake of writing or releasing an album for the sake of releasing an album. So it taken me, you know, maybe a year for an idea, you know, other than rewriting bits on the No Man Love You To Bits album. And suddenly, very late at night, an idea came to me. I wrote it down. I sang it in the middle of the night while the family was sleeping. And it was a track called One Last Call. And it felt different to me. And it was just something in the use of the keyboards that I was going for um, and the mood of it. And the next day I thought, this is the next album. 
But what I'm going to do is I'm going to concentrate on one particular mood and one particular approach and almost examine that rather than the last few albums that have been quite dynamic and quite eclectic. And maybe it was because I'd just done this very dynamic album with No Man that I just wanted to retreat into something much more atmospheric. And so that's what happened with Late Night Laments. And going back to your question, what was interesting is that with a lot of albums, I, you know, I wanted certain players to bring the music out or to add something to it. With this album, from the very beginning, everything seemed to work and everything was there. So one last call, that's what I want to do with the album. And then I, I, with my co-producer, Brian Hulse, I was writing and he and I were writing in late 2019 and early 2020, really concentrated bursts of writing new material with this very focused end in sight. And I had the title, Late Night Laments, straight away. As soon as I'd done one last call, I thought, this is Late Night Laments. Um, pretty soon afterwards, I had the cover artwork. You know, the cover artwork, um, I outlined to my artist, Jared Gosling, probably December or January. I knew what I wanted. Um, and in terms of the COVID mask that's there as well, um, I was very well aware of this happening from the first reports in Wuhan because I followed this story from it being a tiny bit in The Guardian, you know, being a 20th of the second page to it being all 20 pages of the paper by, <laughs> by late January, you know. Yeah. And um, so this was in the back of my mind. And, and one of the things that also defines the album for me, there's a track called We Caught the Light, which I, I started to write on ukulele. And um, when I'd written this song, which was my first song written in 2020, um, in January, I had an overwhelming sense this was not going to be a good year. Oh, my goodness. And there was just a real sense of, I, I, I can't quite put it into words, but I felt a real need to finish this album. And I felt very strongly that something odd was happening and going to happen. And um, so, yes, this influenced the mood of the music and the mood of the cover and... Um, and going back to your actual question, for the first time since No Man's Together with Stranger, the demos just felt right. Whereas normally I might think this demo, this is the basis from which to do a big production. I want Jim Mathias on this. I want, um, I want a string quartet here. On this occasion, the pieces just seemed right as they were. And in fact, on a couple of occasions, I did add bass and I did add string quartet and I thought, you know what? It ruins the song. And that happened with No Man's Together with Stranger, where Stephen and I finished it. It sounded great, but we added a few things, brass instruments and drums, and then we just took them off. And so that's what happened with this album. There probably were about 10 people on it, but um, gradually they got whittled down and down until it became the demo again, almost. All right. That's, uh, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Um, yeah, like like a very completely new approach, uh, as it sounds to me, like you just described. You you mentioned uh, your uh, cover artwork artist, and that was also uh, is of course something that uh, you will see when you when you look at all your solo albums that they share the same visual 
uh, language. Mm -hmm. um, so, so maybe you want to say a few words about your go-to cover artwork artist. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jared Gosling, he's a, he's an interesting guy. He's somebody I kind of met about 10 years ago and, um, he had, um, he was in an electronic band from Sheffield and he, he wrote to me because he wanted advice because he was in a band called I Monster. I think he still is in the, in I Monster who'd had, um, a top 20 hit all over the world, um, with a kind of a chill out dance track in the early 2000s. But Jared's real love is progressive music. And so he wrote to me at Burning Shed saying, look, I've got this album. Have you got any advice for it? You know, I'm known as an electronic DJ and producer, but I just want to make prog. And so I really loved his artwork, really loved his music because it's very imaginative. And when I was doing my solo albums, I felt that I wanted a really distinct visual identity that was different from No Man, different from what I'd done before. And Jared is just a really... Um, skillful painter and has a style that was so removed from anything I'd used before. So with Abandoned Dance or Dreams, I consciously went with, with something different. And since then, I've carried it on because I think, as you say, there's a language to the covers. And, and I think that with the, be with the best covers, like Abandoned Dance or Dreams and Lost in the Ghost Light and Late Night Laments, they almost act as a window into the music that I think all of the themes of the album, this isn't a concept album, but it's conceptual in that it's got a similar feel throughout. And I think that cover says everything because what you've got is the person in their favorite comfy chair in their living room, listening to their favorite music with all of their books, records, CDs, everything that they feel defines them around them. And then in the background, you've got 24 hour news spewing out the global tragedies. And so you've almost got somebody trying to lose themselves in this world of beauty, this world of art. And in the background, reality is coming up to you and slapping you in the face. And with the album, I wanted to create this kind of late night feel of something that's quite woozy, quite seductive, quite beautiful. But if you burrow down into the lyrics, there are a lot of global themes in there. You've got um, hate crimes, you've got generational divides, you've got people randomly going mad and committing murders. It's actually lyrically quite serious, while superficially, I think it has a sense of calm. And that's what I think the cover also depicts, that somebody's there in their serene world, but you can see the global crisis in the background. All right. Yeah, you, you seem to anticipate a lot of my questions, which which is very cool. Um, so I don't really have to ask them. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but one one question we we I, I really need uh, I I don't need to ask, but I want to ask. I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about you. Uh, I mean uh, about your uh, thoughts about um, genre definitions and where you see yourself as a uh, as an artist, like you said, you love the early progressive um, music, and but with your own music, it's not like you wouldn't fit in in the like like the term prog music is used yeah, yeah. nowadays. 
your music wouldn't necessarily fit there. So, yeah, what's your take on, on genre definitions and where would you place yourself in your music? It's really difficult um, because I don't, with very few exceptions, I don't think I've ever made genre music. You know, I, I, what I do is very instinctive. It's quite emotional. It's quite instinctive. And I follow my instincts. And as the album years, which is a podcast I've got with Stephen Wilson shows, I've got very eclectic tastes. You know, from, from very early on, the first music I ever loved was film music. So, you know, I love film music, classical music, folk music, jazz music, prog, electronic, pure pop, um, R&B, soul. You know, I, I follow whatever I think is interesting. And my own collection is very diverse. And with one or two exceptions, which I'll mention, I've never really dipped into a genre. You know, No Man, we got signed in the early 1990s and we were signed... And it's bizarre to think of this now as a kind of indie dance band. Stephen Wilson and I got signed in Britain <laughs> and America as an indie dance band in the era of the Happy Mondays, Stone Roses, the Charlatans. And this is because we used dance beats at that point in electronics. But our music always drew from all sorts of, of people and styles. Um, so I don't know, you know, I hope that what I do is distinctive and personal. The exceptions to this are Lost in the Ghost Light, which was drawing from certain traditional progressive elements. And that's because that was a concept album about a person who had been in an underground band in the 1960s, and 1970s, had success. So deliberately, the music occasionally echoed some of the progressive vocabulary. Outside of that, I've, I've had a side project called Henry Fool, where I play guitar rather than sing. And Henry Fool was deliberately created as an outlet for some of my ridiculous instrumental ideas, which were more in a kind of 70s jazz or progressive rock territory. But even then, I think it's as close to post-rock, you know, Sigur Ross or Godspeed, You Like Emperor, as it is to... Um, Genesis or King Crimson. Um, so yes, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know where you'd place my music. I suppose emotionally and spiritually, it comes more from a particular type of British music in the 1980s where you had Talk Talk, Blue Nile, David Sylvian, which then maybe evolved into things like Massive Attack and Portishead with the trip-hop movement, and perhaps even artists like Bjork, you know, No Man was signed to One Little Indian, which was Bjork's label. Yeah. And um, an album like Vespertine by Bjork, I suppose, is in a similar emotional territory to some of what I do. Um, American bands, I, I, I'm a huge fan of um, Mercury Rev and Flaming Lips, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and they almost create a sort of contemporary indie psychedelia. Um, mm -hmm. And there are things in their textures and their music I, I like a lot. But I, I honestly couldn't tell you. I just kind of make music that hopefully satisfies other people. But, you know, it, it interests me it, and it comes out of me quite instinctively. It's a terrible answer. 
<laughs> no, not at all. I mean, uh, it would be very boring if you said, well, my music, uh, the genre of my music is this and this, and that's it. <laughs> well, well, also, we, we shift from genres, you know, because obviously, you know, my last album, Flowers at the Scene, was quite dynamic and worked in, in quite a number of musical territories. This is much more focused in a kind of melancholic electronica. Um, but the No Man album was almost like um, a progressive disco epic. You know, it was a bizarre fusion <laughs> of disco and soul elements, but with a scope and an eclecticism which suggested progressive music. Yeah. So, you know, it, it varies. And I think the thing is with this, that now I've done an album that is very emotionally focused, it's likely... I'm going to do precisely the opposite with my next album. All right. Um, yeah, but you already touched a bit on your like your your um, collaboration with uh, Steve Wilson, of course, uh, or various collaborations. Actually, I um, from my broadcast uh, co-producer and sometimes co-host Randy M. Salo, uh, for my last birthday, I got a nice little book that. Uh, hi, that that uh, uh, is called "Time Flies: The Story of Porcupinery." Ah, uh, yeah. And I think there, yeah, there's the the author also did some interviews with you, and mm -hmm. at the very beginning, there's also some stories about how you guys met uh, at the end of the '80s already. So that's been yeah. quite quite a few years back, um, and that. Uh, Yeah, I've been wondering what's your take on on how the the music industry changed or the, yeah, the environment for uh alternative or independent artists like you and um for better or for worse, I don't know. Um It's yeah. First for taking corona out of account uh, like I mean the the industry changed a lot in the last 20, 30 years, I guess, but of course, mostly in the last 20 years with, with, with all the streaming coming up and uh, you already touched on that subject at the very beginning. Um, yeah, wh wh what has changed for you and, and, and how, how does it feel uh, to, to be an artist in this new... In this new age? <laughs> well, it, it's, it's changed an awful lot. When I first started, when I was a teenager in the 80s, although there was less music TV, less music radio, there was actually more diversity, if this makes any sense. Um, Absolutely. Where I lived, I, I used to live between Liverpool and Manchester, and there used to be two radio stations on each of those. There were two Liverpool stations, two Mancunian stations. And after six o'clock at night, The DJs were free to play what they wanted. And that music was incredibly diverse, from indie to progressive to soul, you name it. People were just playing what they loved. And this now sounds bizarre, but major stations, I used to go up as a teenager with my cassette, and I'd go up to them and say, excuse me, sir, would you please play this? And they would play my cassette. So it would be almost like, Here's the new Kate Bush single running up that hill. And now here's a piece by Tim Bonus. Da -da. 
<laughs> and it was unbelievable. DJs were approachable. This was only like 1985, 86, 87, you know? Yeah. And they were very approachable. They were very enthusiastic. Um, on TV, we had two music programs. One was the Tube, one was the Ogre Whistle Test. And they would have anything. They would have the chart-topping artist. They would have King Crimson. And they would then have whoever was fashionable that week. Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. It really drew on everything. So when I was younger, you were exposed to so many types of music. And one of the great ironies since the 1990s, really, is we suddenly got 24-hour music channels galore, 24-hour radio channels galore, digital music channels with the advent of the internet. And everything is stripped and streamed. So Manchester and Liverpool now have about 10 or 20 radio stations per city. But they all but play all the same. Them, <laughs> well, this is it. It's true. 10 of them play the same top 20 playlist day in, day out. Three or four of them are all talk. They're talk radio. Yeah. And then the others will just play soul, jazz, indie. They're all stripped and streamed. With, and it's, there's no kind of eclecticism or drawing from things. And, and ever since, uh, so, so that's, that's changed and it's worse. So what's bizarre is when I was an unsigned teenager, I could get my music on major radio stations by major DJs. Now, when I'm signed and I actually sell a fair bit and have an audience, I can't get on anything. You know, Stephen, <laughs> you know, Stephen gets number three albums that are in the top three in the charts and cannot get played on anything. Yeah. Because it's very genre specific or chart specific. It's, be, it's become much more limited. There are exceptions. You know, there's Radio 6 in Britain, 6 Music, um, has got a DJ-led, more eclectic musical policy. So there are a few, but, you know, we're really talking about very few exceptions in this contemporary world, which is weird, given that we've now got more possibilities for yeah. this to happen. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing um, that weirdly... Um, the ability to get music listened to by a wider audience has all but disappeared. You know, we all exist in ghettos. And, and I'm lucky, you know, going back to one of your original questions about prog, partly because, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of a lot of the prog innovators. Um, I'm honoured that the prog community has taken my music to heart. You know, that to me is important because the prog audience is quite open-minded. The prog audience loves music. So as much as I might think a lot of my music isn't obviously prog or isn't even prog, I'm really pleased that the prog community is taking it on board because it's a good audience. And, but this is it. It's in a ghetto of a prog community. There's, there's a ghetto of prog community, a ghetto of a metal community, a ghetto of an indie community. Yeah. And even within metal, you've probably got death metal, hair metal, black metal yeah, and so on <laughs> um it's it's become so separated um and streaming has exacerbated things in a way because obviously it, it's not i don't think it encourages deep listening i think when you've got the, all of the world's music at your fingertips and it's streaming like water 
you maybe don't give it the time and attention you would in the era when you used to buy things or absorb things. So maybe it doesn't encourage deep listening. Um, and so for me with streaming, and, and obviously we know about the financial model, how it benefits um, the tech companies and it benefits Daniel Ek, <laughs> but it does not benefit the musicians themselves. Yeah. And I think, you know, there can be serious repercussions relating to that. But, you know, luckily, in terms of how things have affected me, I've been quite lucky in that maybe because I established myself originally in the 90s, I still have an audience that wants to buy what I do. So I, I'm lucky in that I still sell a fair few CDs, LPs, um, and that there's a market for what I do. Um, but I'm aware of, of, of how rare that is these days in some ways and, and feel, again, quite honoured that that's the case. Um, but yes, I think that if I were an up-and-coming musician now, I don't know what the hell I would do. It would be bewildering. You, you, you're, you're amazing. I was just waiting for an opening to ask you the question, is there any advice that you could give to young aspiring musicians? <laughs> well, I suppose the advice would be now, you know, whereas at one point, you know, it would be pursue your, you know, it still would be pursue your music honestly and then see where it fits. You know, what, what I do with my music is this. I have to produce what I believe in and what I love. Then when I've done that, I'll try and sell it as hard as I can. I'll try and make sure it reaches a market as much as I can. But the music itself is paramount and you've got to believe in it. So I think once you've created something that's yours and you believe in it, I guess, unfortunately, now, you know, you've got to find out which radio stations, which online magazines would have an affinity with it and target this. Um, Because, again, generally it doesn't work. You know, whereas um, even local newspapers in Britain would have articles on local bands, now even your local newspaper in Britain gets a report that comes to them from London about Kanye West or Beyonce. Yeah. You know, it's, it's bizarre that the, the number of avenues that a young band has got to get any exposure is less than it was in the 1980s when there weren't hardly any avenues. Yeah. Because people aren't interested. Things have become centralized and things have become a lot less diverse, which is very odd. And, you know, again, I don't know what chart music is like in Germany, but chart music in Britain through streaming, they found that actually the top 20 at one point was virtually immobile. It wasn't changing week after week after week after week. And it was a remarkably similar style of music. Album charts, you can still get shocks where, you know, Dame Vera Lynn might go in at number five as a result of VE Day or, um, or Judas Priest's new album may actually hit the top 10 because they've yeah. still got a core audience. Yeah, in Germany would be, yeah, Stephen Wilson or, I don't know, Dream Theater or Devin Townsend or exactly, bands yeah. like, I don't know, Nightwish, uh, Sabaton, or you name it, like these these bigger players in progressive rock metal or also like mainstream metal, I don't know, Amon Amath or uh, 
whatever they called um they would pop up in the album charts of course in the, in the top 10 the bigger players but uh yeah. Uh, yeah the top 10 or top 100 single streaming is uh um yeah a, lo a lot of that stuff is quite unlistenable for me i have to admit <laughs> Well, it's certainly something, you know, I, and I think Stephen and I have talked about this on the album years, that we feel less connected to contemporary pop music. There is a great deal of good music out there in many different genres. So, you know, I do feel there's some great music being made. So it's not a criticism of music being made at the moment. But in terms of what's actually reaching people, it does seem like one of the most boring and samey periods of history we've ever been in musically and streaming's contributed to that because you know of course it is going to be um somebody listening to that novelty chart hit 200 times on their phone and of course we also know one of the things that that i remember saying in the early days of streaming was um well actually couldn't record labels manufacture a hit and indeed they found out that in america there were streaming farms where basically companies have been paying people to stream particular things again and again and again in order to get them noticed yeah. and in the chart, and um, which is like payola in the old days of records, you know, when people used to pay to get things played on the radio and in the charts. Um, so, yes, it, you know, it does seem... I really wish I could be a little more optimistic on it, but but the optimism is that you're still doing this show, I'm still able to make my music, and there are still people out there who, because of the internet, are prepared to look outside of the norm. And um, so, yeah, I think, you know, if you're curious, there's always that possibility to find music. You know, my son, when he was two, discovered the Beatles, and he absolutely adored the Beatles cartoons on YouTube. This led to an obsession with the Beatles, which eventually led to him looking at interviews with McCartney and Lennon about their influences. And so he followed it through to rock and roll, which then led to rockabilly, which even led to country and Western music, you know, things that I hadn't introduced him to, but that he had followed through a logical path. So, you know, technology can provide you with ways to experience music and culture that isn't obvious, you know, isn't a done deal. So in that sense, the internet is great because it's the library of all things. But what's funny at the moment is that we are finding that despite having more 24-hour media, less things are being covered. And that's, it's an unusual phenomenon, really. Yeah. As we said, you know, from local papers to local radio stations, it, it's bizarre that they're not celebrating difference. It's almost like we're all joining in on the same party. <laughs> Very interesting thoughts uh, there. And um, but as you said, the internet can be also like a, a, the library of many, of all things almost. And um, it's just a matter of how you are willing to use it. And uh, you also mentioned it a couple of times throughout this podcast that you, you yourself uh, started a podcast with uh, your friend Stephen Wilson back in May called The Album Years. And there's nine episodes uh, right now. Um, yeah, how, how did this podcast come about? And, and maybe you can give a quick pitch of that. 
Um, well, this came about because Stephen contacted me um, really as we knew the lockdown was about to be announced. It, it's a funny thing because I finished my album, by the way, on the day that lockdown was announced. Oh, right. And, and I was very lucky because I couldn't have made it after that point yeah. because we've had to deal with homeschooling, all sorts of issues. Um, but anyway, Stephen had decided that he was going to cancel his album. And again, relating to, uh, to Late Night Lament, I was worried. I thought, well, actually, will Late Night Laments have to be cancelled? Will it be irrelevant? Because everything seemed unimportant in the face of the virus. Yeah. But what's interesting for me is that as the pandemic's gone on, a lot of the themes I was talking about, hate crimes, generational divides, and so on, have actually become more prominent in the news than they were before. So that was an unusual thing for me. But for Stephen, because I think his album, The Future Bites, was kind of about consumerism, it suddenly seemed completely irrelevant. Yeah. And so he decided to wait. So he'd banned, you know, he'd, he'd basically postponed the release of the album. So he phoned me and said, look, do you fancy doing a podcast? So for about two days, we just bandied ideas about and the notion is that we're going to give back to music what music's given to us as music fans. And he came up with the idea of the podcast. I came up with the idea of the album year's title. And together we came up with the format. And um, it's been, you know, it's been enjoyable. So basically we take a given year because albums to me are still an important artistic statement, you know, like a novel's an, arti an artistic statement. Um, I still love the album and so does Stephen and so basically we kind of plucked years where we thought this was a great year for the dominance of the album and the importance of the album and we talked about it across genres and we tend to concentrate on albums that aren't necessarily the biggest so although Dark Side of the Moon is probably my favorite album of 1973 we don't really discuss it because everybody's discussed it. Yeah. But we do discuss Judy Sill, Heart Food, which is a beautiful singer-songwriter album from 1973 that not very many people have heard of. So um, it tends to focus on lesser-known albums, though we will occasionally mention big commercial albums because sometimes the very big commercial albums people don't talk about because they're just there. You know, yeah. they're just known. So, <clears throat> you know, so we've discussed Fleetwood Mac, for example, you know. Um, yeah, so, so that's what it is. We discover the music, we discuss the music in any given um, year. Yeah, so is there, is there any, any plan or, on like a, like a kind of release schedule, like, or do you, do you rather do these sporadically when you when you get time or it's sporadically really it's kind of we we just kind of come up with the year and then say right are you free on tuesday um and we do it then but we're both quite ruthless i mean the one thing that's good about you know i've always loved working with Stephen because i'm quite perfectionist and i'm quite ruthless but he's even more perfectionist <laughs> and ruthless and so the two of us you know we will talk for four hours And then we will just cut, 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 you know, until we've said what we wanted to say. Um, but it's been, you know, yeah, it's been very enjoyable and it's led to us listening to a lot more music as well. Well, the, the inception of this 
podcast with my buddy Randy M. Saylor was kind of similar. Um, but we like to keep it as uncut as possible. So um, we, we just had this little uh, connection hiccup. Of course, I'm going to edit this out. But otherwise, yeah. uh, this conversation will will go up uh as a whole unedited good grief i'd be <laughs> tragic you'd be sued um yeah i think uh we covered a lot of interesting topics uh over this uh yeah just just short short of an hour right now um your solo album your new solo album tim is coming out on august 28th it's uh called Late Night Laments and uh, it features uh, Richard Barbieri, Colin Edwin, Kavos Turabi and Evan Carson as we established at the very beginning of the uh, episode. Thanks, Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, yeah, yeah my good, pleasure. Good luck with the release of the album. I'm looking forward to uh, listening um, firstly more more of your back catalog because i i still ha have a lot of uh um uh yeah dis discovering to do um but it, also it's fairly diverse <laughs> yeah it, it, I mean, it's the thing i think that basically most of my albums tend to be a reaction to what's gone before so they're either a contradiction of what's gone before or a continuation and so there are quite a number of bases that the music covers you know from henry fool which is instrumental um, and quite complex to late night laments, which is much more atmospheric and melancholic, and you know perhaps um, is a more spiritual album. Because that's the thing: if we ever talk about our favorite albums, mine come from two extremes, and you've either got that extreme of people like um, David Bowie, where they constantly reinvent themselves and. and stamp their identity on what's going out in the what's going on in the outside world or you have people like talk talk where they're producing albums that are very inward um where they're just in a sense responding to their own emotions their own tastes and creating an almost spiritual music and so i think my music does go from extremes of attempting to sort of grab what's outside and stamp my personality on it or evoke what I'm feeling internally. Um, yeah, great, great words again. Um, and to finish my sentence, I also look. I'm, <laughs> I'm also looking forward to, uh, yeah, listening uh, and and uh, discovering more more older albums that uh, you guys are talking about on your podcast, the album years. Because that's I thought it, this was a really cool format, and it also, as you said, you're you're digging up some obscure gems that not many people might be, might have heard of, including me. So yeah. that's also a cool way to to discover more music that's new to us but has been out for a long time already. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to to all this. If I, uh, yeah. Find If the you time. have the time. <laughs> <laughs> Always difficult. Thanks for being on the show. Um, that was Tim Bonus. Um, yeah, as always, thank you for listening. Take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and listen to great music. The 
broadcast is a production of Stuas Media and is recorded at the Moonbase Studios in Munich. It is produced by Randy M. Salo, Janine Stengel-Lewis, Blake Lewis, Kai Metzner, and Dario Albrecht. Our theme music is by This Is Not An Elephant.